Well, if you would please take out your Bibles and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 19. As you turn there, let me remind you of where we've been in this book of 2 Samuel. David is God's anointed king, and by and large, he was a good and faithful king. God blessed his reign abundantly for several decades. But that all takes a sharp turn with David's sin, his adultery with Bathsheba and his murder of Uriah. That leads to a a cascade of consequences and repercussions. The sword shall never depart from your house, including his own son, Absalom, leading a rebellion against him by declaring himself king. And Absalom's rebellion is not like one of these small little revolts that, I don't know, kings just have to deal with from time to time, like just part of the job description, uh, one that can be put away quickly. You know, Absalom gets most of the nation on his side. The hearts of the men have gone after Absalom. And that eventually leads to a civil war between David's forces and Absalom's, uh, culminating in a battle in which Absalom is killed. And that's where we pick it up this morning. So let's start by just reading our text. Second uh, Samuel 19, we'll be covering the first 40 verses of this chapter. So Second Samuel 19, verses 1 through 40. I hear the word of the Lord. It was told Joab, Behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. For the people heard that day, the king is grieving for his son. And the people stole into the city that day as people steal in who were ashamed when they flee in battle. The king covered his face and the king cried with a loud voice, O my son Absalom, O Absalom, my son, my son. Then Joab came into the house to the king And said, you have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines. Because you love those who hate you and hate those who love you. For you have made it clear today that commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, then you would be pleased. Now therefore arise, go out and speak kindly to your servants, for I swear by the Lord, if you do not go, not a man will stay with you this night. And this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. Then the king arose and took his seat in the gate. And the people were all told, behold, the king is sitting in the gate. And all the people came before the king. Now Israel had fled every man to his own home. And all the people were arguing throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, The king delivered us from the hand of our enemies and saved us from the hand of the Philistines. And now he has fled out in the land, fled out of the land from Absalom. But Absalom, whom we anointed over us, is dead in battle. Now therefore, why do you say nothing about bringing the king back? And King David sent this message to Zadok and Abiathar the priests. 
say to the elders of Judah, why should you be the last to bring the king back to his house when the word of all Israel has come to the king? You are my brothers. You are my bone and my flesh. Why then should you be the last to bring back the king? And say to Amasa, are you not my bone and my flesh? God do so to me and more also if you are not commander of my army from now on in place of Joab. And he swayed the heart of all the men of Judah as one man, so that they sent word to the king, Return, both you and all your servants. So the king came back to the Jordan, and Judah came to Gilgal to meet the king and to bring the king over the Jordan. And Shimei, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite from Baharim, hurried to come down with the men of Judah to meet King David. And with him were a thousand men from Benjamin, And Ziba, the servant of the house of Saul, with his 15 sons and 20 servants, rushed down to the Jordan before the king, and they crossed the ford to bring over the king's household and to do his pleasure. And Shimei, the son of Gera, fell down before the king as he was about to cross the Jordan and said to the king, Let not my lord hold me guilty or remember how your servant did wrong on the day my lord the king left Jerusalem. Do not let the king take it to heart, for your servant knows that I have sinned. Therefore, behold, I have come this day, the first of all the house of Joseph, to come down to meet my lord, the king. Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, answered, Shall not Shimei be put to death for this, because he cursed the Lord's anointed? But David said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah, that you should this day be as an adversary to me? Shall anyone be put to death in Israel this day? For do I not know that I am king this day over Israel. And the king said to Shimei, You shall not die. And the king gave him his oath. And Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. He had neither taken care of his feet, nor trimmed his beard, nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day he came back in safety. And when he came to Jerusalem to meet the king, the king said to him, Why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? He answered, My lord, O king, my servant deceived me. For your servant said to him, I will saddle a donkey for myself that I may ride on it and go with the king. Oh, for your servant is lame. He has slandered your servant to my lord the king. My lord the king is like the angel of God. Do therefore what seems good to you. For all my father's house were but men doomed to death before my lord the king. But you set your servant among those who eat at your table. What further right have I, then, to cry to the king? And the king said to him, Why speak any more of your affairs? I have decided. You and Ziba shall divide the land. And Mephibosheth said to the king, Oh, let him take it all, since my lord the king has come safely home. Now Barzillai the Gileadite had come down from Rogalim, and he went on with the king to the Jordan to escort him over the Jordan. Barzillai was a very aged man, 80 years old. He had provided the king with food while he stayed at Mehenaim, for he was a very wealthy man. And the king said to Barzillai, Come over with me, and I will provide for you with me in Jerusalem. But Barzillai said to the king, How many years have I still to live that I should go up with the king to Jerusalem? I am this day 80 years old. Can I discern what is pleasant and what is not? 
Can your servant taste what he eats or what he drinks? Can I still listen to the voice of singing men and singing women? Why then should your servant be an added burden to my lord the king? Your servant will go a little way over the Jordan with the king. Why should the king repay me with such a reward? Please let your servant return, that I may die in my own city, near the grave of my father and my mother. But here is your servant, Kimham. Let him go over with my lord the king, and do for him whatever seems best to you. And the king answered, Kimham shall go over with me, and I will do for him whatever seems good to you. And all that you desire of me, I will do for you. Then all the people went over the Jordan, and the king went over. And the king kissed Barzillai and blessed him, and returned to his, and he returned to his own home. The king went on to Gilgal, and Kimham went on with him. All the people of Judah, and also half the people of Israel, brought the king on his way. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Second Samuel 19. Now if we take a step back and kind of think about the bigger picture, kind of broader structure of the book, we see that Second Samuel 19 is like a bridge chapter between two wars, right? It connects two different rebellions. Absalom's rebellion in chapter 18 and Sheba's rebellion in chapter 20. And so in that sense, chapter 19 is kind of like the interwar period of the 1920s and 30s, with pretty much any kind of large-scale thing that happened in that time period, especially in Europe. Like, you could either trace it back to World War I, like, here's how this event is a result of what happened in World War I, or you could connect it forward to World War II. Here's how this event led to World War II. Second Samuel 19, at least the first half of it, is kind of like that. There's one narrative, David mourning over Absalom and then Joab confronting him. That points us backward to the events of chapter 18. Like, here's how this event is a result of Absalom's rebellion. And then there's another narrative, David making peace with the tribe of Judah, That points us forward to the events of chapter 20. Like, here's how this event leads to Sheba's rebellion. And then the chapter takes a step back from that kind of big picture view of wars, uh, past and future, and it zooms in on three individual interactions that David has as he's being restored to the kingship. So then, here's our outline for today. It's a little different from usual because this chapter has kind of a unique structure. Point number one, looking backward. Point number two, looking forward. And point number three, and we're going to spend the bulk of our time there, it's just three conversations. Looking backward, looking forward, and then three conversations. So first, looking backward, David continues to mourn over Absalom. The war is over because Absalom, the the chief rebel, the leader of the opposition movement, the pretender to the throne, Absalom is dead. And with him goes the entire rebellion, right? Like his army scatters and everybody goes home. 
It's a great victory for God's kingdom. And so there should be great rejoicing among God's people. You remember after David killed Goliath, the Israelites defeated the Philistines. You remember the the scenes of great joy, celebrating that took place in the streets? The women came out. Uh, They're singing, they're dancing, there's tambourines, there's songs of joy, there's musical instruments. There's even that little jingle about Saul slaying his thousands and David his ten thousands. But here in 2 Samuel 19, you'll notice that there are no women in the streets. Uh, There are no songs, no jingles. There's no celebration of God's deliverance. Because for David... The only thing that matters right now is that his son, Absalom, is dead. And as the king goes, so goes the people. And so verse 2, the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. And so instead of being welcomed back with shouts of victory, a parade through the streets, the soldiers have to sneak back into the city like a, like a teenager who missed curfew, They're quietly coming in, heads bowed down, as if they had lost the battle. And instead of tambourines, instead of songs of joy ringing through the streets, the only sound anyone can hear in the streets of Mahanaim is David wailing with a loud voice, Oh, my son, Absalom, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Now there's nothing wrong with a father being sorrowful and sad over the premature death of his son. But you see, for David to be so entirely consumed with mourning for Absalom like this was to dishonor and shame the people who loyally risked their lives for him and his kingdom. Because remember, Absalom didn't die in his sleep. Absalom didn't die in like a tragic car accident. No, Absalom died in a war. A war in which he was trying to destroy not only David, but also all the men who were with David. And we can go even further than that. Absalom died as a king of the earth who set himself up against the Lord and against his anointed. Absalom died going against God as an enemy of God. And so for David to do this, this all-consuming mourning, well, this is not just an affront to his people who risked their lives for him. It's also dishonoring to his God, who in his righteous judgment brought his curse on one who was trying to destroy God's kingdom and God's king. And so we can, on one hand, sympathize with a father who's lost his prodigal son, but at the same time acknowledge that his excessive focus here on Absalom dishonors both his people and his God. And so Joab rebukes David for this. These men, they've saved your life. They've saved your family. You're going to shame them like this? Don't you see how ridiculous it is for you to be entirely devoting yourself to Absalom and shaming your people in the process? Look at verse 6. 
David, you might be in denial about this, but Absalom hates you, as evidenced by the fact that he tried to kill you. Yet you love him so much, and your men who love you so much that they're willing to risk their lives for you, well, you hate them. That makes no sense, David. And then I think this is Joab's knockout punch here at the end of verse 6. You have made it clear today. The commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead, then you would be pleased. Like that's got to cut pretty deep. Especially because it was probably true. Exposing just how distorted David's emotional allegiances had become. But you see, Joab's plea here, it's not only based on principle. It's not just about doing what's right and honorable. We know Joab by now. He's not that big on principle anyway. He's much more about practicality and pragmatism. And so practically speaking, David, if you don't change this right now, like if you don't immediately step up and lead your people as you ought to, they're all going to leave. If you do not go, not a man will stay with you this night, and this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. Now David, to his credit, takes these words to heart. After all, Joab's got a point here. So verse 8, he takes his seat in the gate. He symbolically returns to his position of kingly authority. And so the crisis, again, born out of the rebellion from chapter 18, right, looking backward, the crisis seems to be averted. But now in verse 9, the story shifts from looking backward to now looking forward. Because while that issue with his soldiers is now resolved, there's still a bigger issue at play here, which is that David needs to regain his throne. He needs to reclaim his rule over the entire nation. He's always been the rightful king, the one anointed by God to rule over his people. But remember, when Absalom declared himself to be king, lots of Israelites left David and followed Absalom instead. So now that Absalom is dead, like there are some questions that still need to be answered here. Are the people who followed Absalom, are they going to go back to David? Are they going to submit to his rule or are they going to look elsewhere for some other usurper to become king? These aren't just questions that we as the reader are asking. These are questions that the people of Israel were asking. Look at verses 9 and 10. The people were arguing throughout all the tribes of Israel. Basically, should we bring David back to be king over us? Now, the overall sentiment among the tribes of Israel was, yeah, yeah, we should bring David back. We should reinstate David. David needs to come back to Jerusalem to be our king. David gets word of this, and then he does something really interesting. He sends a message to his own tribe, the tribe of Judah. Remember that David is from Bethlehem of Judah. So these are his own people, and he sends a message to them because so far they've stayed quiet 
about his reinstatement. Even as the other tribes are clamoring to bring David back to be king, the tribe of Judah has remained silent. And so look at verses 11 and 12. This is David speaking to the tribe of Judah. Why should you be the last, the last tribe to bring the king back to his house when the word of all Israel has come to the king? You are my brothers. You are my bone and my flesh. Why then should you be the last to bring back the king? Like, why are all the other tribes leading the charge to bring me back? And you guys, my my brothers, my my bone and my flesh, why are you just sitting around twiddling your thumbs? But now we have to ask, why is the tribe of Judah, David's own tribe, why are they... Remember, they were the only tribe that first anointed him king back in 2 Samuel chapter 2. Everybody else went with Ishbosheth, Saul's son. Like, why isn't Judah leading the charge here in bringing David back? And that's where we need to remember how messy civil wars can be. It's often brother against brother. Brother against brother that famously happened in this year's Super Bowl. Uh, Jason Kelsey of the Eagles, Travis Kelsey of the Chiefs, they played against each other. And that definitely, uh, by far, is the most well-known thing that's happened to Travis Kelsey this year. I don't even know what would be a close second. But brother against brother, that's a slogan that was popularized in the American Civil War. Because oftentimes you would have one brother fighting for the Union Army and one brother fighting for the Confederate Army. The civil wars can be really messy. Second Samuel 18, that civil war, well, that was also one of brother against brother. Because remember, it's David versus Absalom. And Absalom is David's son. Which means that if David is from the tribe of Judah, well, guess what? So is Absalom. And much of Absalom's support, it seems, came from the tribe of Judah. Because remember where Absalom first declared himself to be king? In the city of Hebron, that's in the tribe of Judah. And who was his chief military general? It was his cousin Amasa, who, of course, was also from the tribe of Judah. And so that all gives us a clue as to why the tribe of Judah, even though it's David's own tribe, why they're not taking the lead and going back to him. It's because just a short while ago, they took the lead in leaving David for Absalom. So it's like, how are we going to go back now? So David here does something that seems very politically astute. He takes the initiative, he reaches out to the tribe of Judah, and he extends an olive branch. You are my brothers. You are my bone and my flesh. Why don't you guys take the lead in bringing me back? And then look at what he says to Amasa. Remember who Amasa is? Amasa was Absalom's military general. He was the military leader of the rebel forces, but David promises him that he would be commander of his army in place of Joab. That's like if, after Appomattox, President Lincoln made Robert E. Lee 
the commanding general of the U.S. Army, in place of Grant. Like, it's very strange. This is, at first glance, a very strange move. Like, why would he do that? Well, there's probably a personal vendetta aspect to this for David. Demoting Joab, who, even though he did win the war, you remember what he did, he killed Absalom against David's orders. But it's also a very political move. This is steeped in an attempt to make peace. Because by not only not punishing Amasa for leading the opposition, but even promoting him, David is signaling to everyone in Judah who followed Absalom that he is willing to offer amnesty and forgiveness. Listen, even if you supported Absalom, even if you fought for Absalom, even if you led Absalom's armies, Amasa, you're welcome back in my kingdom. I'm not going to hold it against you. And the act of diplomacy works brilliantly, at least with regards to the men of Judah. Look at verse 14. He swayed the heart of all the men of Judah as one man. And so the hearts that Absalom once stole, right, David has swayed back to him so that they sent word to the king, return both you and all your servants. A mission accomplished. Judah's on board. Absalom's people are now David's people again. And so the people of Judah come all the way down to the Jordan River and they meet King David there to escort him back to Jerusalem. And so in that sense, it is a brilliant, brilliant move. But, 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 remember, these events point us forward to what's going to come in chapter 20. I'm going to talk about this more next week. But this move here of reaching out to Judah, this is going to be very, very costly. Because what David unintentionally and unknowingly does here is he drives a wedge between Judah and all the other tribes of Israel. And that's going to have disastrous consequences for the nation as a whole. I'm going to leave that as a cliffhanger for now. If you want to know what happens, well, you can read it for yourself. Or you can come back next Sunday, or preferably you would do both. But point number two is looking forward. So we've looked at the part of the chapter that, that looks backwards, right? Back to chapter 18. Back to what happened with Absalom. And we've looked at the part of the chapter that looks forward, right? That looks forward to what's going to happen in chapter 20 with Sheba's rebellion. But you'll notice that we're only in verse 15 right now. The rest of the chapter, basically from verses 16 to 40, that's the majority of this chapter. Well, that's going to leave behind the kind of big picture events that are linked to those two wars, those two rebellions. And it's going to zoom in for like this really up-close view of three one-on-one -on -one interpersonal interactions that David has on his way back to Jerusalem. And so point number three, three conversations. And that in itself is interesting, isn't it? That, that even in this chapter that's about David's restoration to the kingship, 
So far, it's been about his like negotiations and his wheelings and dealings with the general of his army and then the, the tribes of Israel and the tribes of Judah and these kind of macro decisions that have these wide-ranging implications for everybody in the nation. This is like front page of the news, important events linked to wars, both past and future. But now the author is going to spend a full 25 verses on three conversations with seemingly unimportant, insignificant people. Like, these are not conversations with military generals and heads of state, movers and shakers. No, our three people are a guy who cursed him earlier, a lame man who was taken advantage of, and an old man who just wants to die. But while these three conversations have not really any impact on uh, the national scale, kind of war and politics and things like that. These interactions with Shimei, Mephibosheth, and Barzillai, they do give us tremendous insight into David's character and the nature of his kingship. And that, I think, even more than those kind of large-scale matters of national significance— That's what the Holy Spirit wants us to take away from this chapter, which is why these three interactions take up such a large chunk of our text. So with that said, let's consider now these three interactions. Interaction number one is with Shimei. Uh, You might remember Shimei if you were here a couple of weeks ago. He's the guy who in chapter 16, David is fleeing from Jerusalem. He is weak, He is weary, and Shimei pronounces curses on him, throws stones at him. Get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. You remember that Abishai wants to cut his head off, but David restrains him. Well, let's just say the tables have turned now. David is not leaving Jerusalem weak and defeated. No, he's returning to Jerusalem victorious and triumphant. And so this same Shimei here falls before David and he begs him for mercy. You can see his words in verses 19 through 21. Shimei makes no excuses. He doesn't say, well, I was just having a really bad day. He doesn't deny anything. He completely owns his sin. Your servant did wrong on the day my Lord left Jerusalem. And he flat out confesses, I have sinned. And so he begs David for forgiveness. Now it's impossible for us to know exactly what's going on in his heart. Maybe this is true repentance. We certainly should not doubt the ability of God to grant repentance to even the greatest of blasphemers, even the chief of sinners, the Apostle Paul being exhibit A. But maybe this is just expediency on Shimei's part. Like he knows that David's on his way back to reclaim his throne, and if he doesn't get out in front of this, it's surely going to cost him his life. My gut feeling is option B, but I can't be sure. I think the only person who is sure of what he wants to do here is Abishai. Shall not Shimei be put to death for this because he cursed the Lord's anointed? You know what they say. There's only three certainties in life. Death. Taxes, and Abishai wants to cut someone's head off. 
But in a move that surely surprised Abishai, and that may even come as a surprise to us, David forgives Shimei. Why? Well, remember, David has just lived through a nightmare of all those like earthly consequences for his sins in the past few chapters, culminating in the death of his son Absalom. But going through all of those pains, all of those earthly consequences must have, at the same time, reminded him of how much he'd been forgiven by God. Now as he heads back to Jerusalem to reclaim his throne... Oh, how his mind must have been fixated on the mercies of God. God's restoring him to the kingship. In spite of all of the evil that he's done, God is restoring him to be king. And so just like David once confessed, I have sinned, and it was God who assured him, you shall not die. Like, you deserve to die, but you shall not die. So here... Shimei says to him, I have sinned. And this time it's David giving the assurance. Verse 23, you shall not die. You deserve to die, but you will not. Well, this reminds us of what Jesus would one day teach. Be merciful, even as your father is merciful. As one who had himself received so much mercy from God. Well, David here extends mercy to the undeserving. Brothers and sisters, the Bible so often links the mercy that we as Christians have received in the gospel with the mercy that we then as Christians must show. Because of the gospel that we've been forgiven of all of our sins. That's got to make a difference in our interactions with the Shimeis of the world. Those who would curse us, those who would oppose us, wrong us, attack us. Interaction number one, Shimei. That brings us to our second interaction, and this one is with Mephibosheth. You may have forgotten who Shimei was, but surely you remember Mephibosheth. Who can forget a name like Mephibosheth? He is Jonathan's son. King Saul's grandson, he's the one for whom David went looking that he might show kindness for the sake of Jonathan. And you'll remember, not only does David not kill Mephibosheth when he finds him, remember the custom of the day was to wipe out the entire family of the previous dynasty, but David restores all the land of King Saul to Mephibosheth and even gives Mephibosheth a permanent seat at his table. But then you remember the story takes a turn in chapter 16. David's on the run from Absalom. He's weak. He's weary. And Ziba, Ziba, who is Mephibosheth's servant, who David assigned to keep charge of the estates of Mephibosheth, Ziba shows up alone. Ziba shows up without Mephibosheth, Bearing gifts for David. Some much-needed food and drink. And Ziba tells David that the reason he's alone is because, well, Mephibosheth's back in Jerusalem, and he's hoping that this whole Absalom thing leads to him 
regaining his throne. And so David renders a swift judgment. Behold, all that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours, Ziba. And so the land that was once transferred from Saul to Mephibosheth is now transferred from Mephibosheth to Ziba. Well, it's that Mephibosheth who comes to meet King David. Now put yourself in David's shoes for a second. David must have been shocked to see Mephibosheth. Because remember, he's completely bought into Ziba's story. He thinks Mephibosheth is a traitor. What's going Why is this guy? Why did you not go with me? Now, before we get Mephibosheth's response, the first thing the author tells us is about his appearance. He had neither taken care of his feet, so no pedicures for Mephibosheth, nor had he trimmed his beard nor washed his clothes. From the day the king departed until the day he came back in safety. Uh, What is going on here? These are outward signs of mourning. He is mourning that David has been excluded from his throne. That would have been a very dangerous thing to do in a Jerusalem that Absalom ruled. And so David sees that. But I thought that And then David hears Mephibosheth's explanation as to why he didn't leave Jerusalem with David. Basically, I wanted to go. I wanted to go. I told Ziba to get a donkey for me to ride, and he just took my donkeys and left. Remember, your servant is lame. He can't use his feet. So it's not like he can just get up and walk to Mahanaim. And all that other stuff... That Ziba said about me wanting to be king? That was all lies. That was all slander. This might be the classic case of Proverbs 18.17. The one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. But then Mephibosheth's defense takes this really interesting turn in the middle of verse 27. My Lord, the King, is like the angel of God. Therefore, do what seems best to you. Basically, Mephibosheth stops pressing his case. He stops arguing his rights. He doesn't defend himself any further against Ziba's allegations. Because he knows that he's already received so much grace from King David. So much mercy from King David. And so, yes, he might have a case to present, but given all that he's already received, none of which he's earned, verse 28, what further right have I to cry to the king? But now this puts David in quite a pickle. Because just three chapters earlier, like he gave all of Mephibosheth's land to Ziba. And now Mephibosheth is presenting this awfully good case that he's in the right, What should David do? Kind of like with Shimei, it's a little unclear. Because we can't be 100% sure who is telling the truth. I think Mephibosheth is telling the truth and Ziba is lying. I'm pretty convinced of that. But we can't be 100% sure because the narrator never tells us. And even more than that, David can't be 100% sure. You have to remember that Ziba... Ziba did bring him all of this 
food and supplies in a time of trial. And Ziba does go to meet him at the river, even in this chapter. So David doesn't know what to do. And honestly, he's got more important issues to think about, like reclaiming his throne. And so in what seems to be a move of expediency and pragmatism, he basically splits the land 50-50. But as we read that, like, that is so unsatisfying. Because the only thing we can be 100% sure of is that at least one of them is lying. Right? Their competing claims are irreconcilable. Right? At least one of them is lying to David. And so the solution to split the land 50-50 is rewarding at least one liar with land that he doesn't deserve. Pragmatic? Yes. Keeping the peace? I guess so. True justice? Most definitely not. That makes us marvel all the more at Mephibosheth's response, especially if you believe his story, which I do. His response, oh, let him take it all, since my lord the king has come safely home. In response to his servant stealing his animals, slandering him to the king, in response to the king then responding in an overly pragmatic way, in response to not only losing half of his land, but losing it to the snake who just slandered you, Mephibosheth doesn't respond with anger or or feeling cheated or even self-pity. No, his response is one of thankfulness. Thankfulness that the king is back on his throne. And so Mephibosheth shows where his heart is at. Like at the end of the day, he doesn't care at all about the things that the king could give to him. He just cares about the king. If King David is coming home to Jerusalem, if King David is back at his palace, oh, if I can eat at King David's table once again, well, let Ziba have everything. Take my land, but give me David. Brothers and sisters, I think each of us has much to learn from the school of Mephibosheth. How often do we get caught up in our rights? I deserve better. I don't deserve this. Or the injustices that are done against us. God, how could you fill in the blank? Don't you know that he did this to me or she did that to me? Now, God will right every wrong. He will settle every injustice. But is it possible that we, his people, can be so hung up on those things that we miss the enjoyment and love of God himself? To put it another way, can we rejoice even when we don't get our rights, even when people take advantage of us, even when things don't seem quite fair, can we rejoice nonetheless in the king himself? Interaction number two, Mephibosheth. Third interaction, number three, let's consider Barzillai. Barzillai, we first met back in chapter 17, at the very end of the chapter, 
you'll remember David has crossed the Jordan. He is settling down in Mahanaim. And it was Barzillai who at that point comes to the aid of David. Bringing him not only food, but also just practical things like beds and basins. And so Barzillai has already shown himself to be a brother born for adversity. He courageously comes to David's aid when he was at his lowest point. Well, Barzillai shows up again, once again showing his love and support for David, this time by going with him to the Jordan. And now, David offers to repay him the favor. Why don't you come and stay with me in Jerusalem, and I'm going to provide for you. But Barzillai politely declines David's offer. Why? Because he was an old man. Twice we're told his actual age. He's 80 years old. This is a a conjecture on my part, but I think that specific number is intentionally repeated here because you'll remember what Moses said. The years of our life are 70, even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. And so maybe... As a young man, his younger self, Barzillai would have jumped at the opportunity to serve the king in this way, to enjoy that life. But at this point, he's not about enjoying the finer aspects of palace life, the the food and the, the drink and the entertainment. He just wants to die at home. And so he sends Kimham, his son, in his stead. Now that's, I don't know, kind of an underwhelming anticlimactic story, isn't it? Not exactly the most thrilling story in the Bible. Basically, an old man tells David he doesn't want to go to Jerusalem because he just wants to die at home. Like, this is nobody's favorite Bible story. But I still think there's a lot we can learn from this interaction, as simple as it is. At first, we're reminded of the fact that our lives are but a vapor. Whether you're 20, or you're 40, or you're 60, the day is soon coming, if the Lord doesn't take you home earlier, when you too will say, I am this day 80 years old. Or perhaps you've said that already. You are on the other side of 80 and you're looking back. Whatever the case may be, whatever your situation, whatever your age, Barzillai reminds us that there's going to come a day for each of us when we're not going to have the energy or the vigor or even the physical ability to do the things that we once wanted to do. Even to serve the Lord in the ways we once wanted to serve the Lord. And so Barzillai reminds us that each of us should ask the Lord to teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. But second, Barzillai reminds us that there's many different ways to serve the Lord, to serve his people. For Barzillai, his old age limited the things that he could do. In the particular case of this chapter, he could not go to Jerusalem to be with the king. 
And at his age, he wasn't going to strap on a sword and go fight for David. But one thing he could do, one thing he did do, even in a time of great need for David, was to lavishly, generously, sacrificially give to support God's anointed king. Barzillai reminds us that there's many different ways for us to serve the Lord and his people. For some of us, it's service. For some of us, it's time. For some of us, like Barzillai, it's money. Some are Ittai's, some are Nathan's, some are Barzillai's. But we're reminded that all play an important part in the kingdom. Interaction number three, Barzillai. So these three interactions here that David has on his way back to Jerusalem. You got Shimei, and you got Mephibosheth, and you got Barzillai. These interactions tell us a lot about David, about his character, about the the nature of his kingship. But did you notice, as we went through them, these are three interactions that, if you just think about them long enough— they leave you wanting much more. Consider Shimei. Yes, David forgives Shimei here. But later, 1 Kings chapter 2, David's giving his final instructions to his son and successor Solomon before he dies. And David acknowledges that while he swore not to put Shimei to death, basically that Solomon should. He says, therefore, do not hold him guiltless, for you are a wise man. You will know what you ought to do to him, and you shall bring his gray head down with blood to Sheol. And so David's forgiveness here, it's forgiveness, but it's not lasting forgiveness. The Shimei's sin is put away, but only for a season. And then consider Mephibosheth. What a a beautiful picture of devotion to the king. But man, that 50-50 split, like that just leaves us wanting. Uh, Sure, this might be the best that David can do with the facts at hand. The more pressing issues that he has to deal with. But this is not true justice. Yeah, Mephibosheth might not care, but it just doesn't seem right. And then consider Barzillai. What a wonderful portrait of a faithful life, even in old age. But there's also a backdrop of sadness to the whole scene, isn't there? Barzillai loves David. A younger Barzillai would have surely gone to Jerusalem to be with David and to serve David. But age Time has just taken a toll on him. And so he, in his frailty, in his weakness, he cannot serve the king as he desires. So the more that you think about these three interactions, the more they just leave you wanting more. And that's where we're reminded, as we are every single week, that David is not the Messiah. David is not the one in whom all of the promises of Scripture are fulfilled. 
David is not the one who's going to make everything right. David, in all his shortcomings, in all the ways in which his kingdom is not perfect, he merely points us to Jesus. David doesn't grant a a full, lasting, permanent forgiveness like Shimei is going to find out. But Jesus, Jesus came to die for our sin, that our sins might be cast into the depths of the sea, never to condemn us again. Because he himself has borne the full wrath of God in the place of his people. And my sin, not in part, but the whole, has been nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. If you are not a Christian today, I implore you to look to Jesus. He is the only one who can save us from our sins. I implore you to repent and to trust in him today. David doesn't grant that lasting, full, sure forgiveness, but Jesus does. And David doesn't dispense true and full justice, just like Mephibosheth found out. But Jesus, the judge of all the earth who will do right, he will right every wrong. And salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. There are going to be no arbitrary, pragmatic 50-50 splits in his kingdom. And serving David... Oh, how it's limited by just human frailty and weakness, as Barzillai can testify. But Jesus, you see, his people are going to worship him forever. Dear saints, especially those of you who, you you feel the outer self wasting away. Uh, like you felt these limitations in your finite, failing body. Limitations that have been placed on your ability to serve and love and worship your God as you might want to. Well, friend, doesn't this story of Barzillai just make you long for an eternity in which all of God's people will worship him and serve him in our perfect bodies forever? We've been there 10,000 years. It's a lot longer than 80, Barzillai. 10,000 years bright shining as the sun. We've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. 2 Samuel 19. Shimei and Mephibosheth and Barzillai. Well, do they not point us once again Not to David, but to the one who really will make all things new. Let's pray. Father, we, your people, long for perfection for your face to worship you forever. God, give us hearts that long for that. Father, we pray for any in this room who do not yet know 
that gospel of salvation. Father, we pray that even today, that you would grant repentance, that you would grant faith, that you would grant salvation. We ask this in Jesus' name.